President Trump may not know a lot about the framers, but they certainly knew a lot about him. He then failed to defend the Capitol, the Congress, and the Vice President during the insurrection, engaging in extraordinary dereliction of duty and desertion of duty that was only possible because of the high office he held. It is hard to imagine a clearer example of how a president could abuse his office, inciting violence against a co-equal branch of government while seeking to remain in power after losing an election. What you experienced that day, what we experienced that day, what our country experienced that day, is the framers' worst nightmare come to life. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth, even in the middle of impeachments. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. There have been just three Three presidents in the 243-year history of the United States who have been impeached for a total of four presidential impeachments. Donald Trump has now been impeached twice. He alone makes up half of all of the presidential impeachments in the history of our nation. That, no matter what happens, will be a scar and a mark of shame that will never be removed no matter what happens in his historic second impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, which got underway on Tuesday. Donald Trump is the first president to be impeached twice by the House, and he is now the first former 
president to be put on trial in the U.S. Senate. He was impeached most recently by the House um, on January 13, yes, when he was still in office for his role in the deadly assault by a pro-Trump MAGA mob at the U.S. Capitol just one week earlier on January 6, as Congress was counting and confirming Joe Biden's Electoral College victory from November, in which no states are contested. No states were contested on January 6th. All states had confirmed their results to be accurate. So uh, this is likely to be another week of uh, building the airplane as uh, we are flying in it at the same time, as the old saying goes. So I do beg your indulgence and forgiveness as we figure out how, once again, how to do this, even as it is ongoing. Of course, with our huge staff here at the <laughs> Bradcast World News Headquarters, it should be easy peasy. Am I right, huge staff, Desi Doyen? <laughs> well, let me look around and see. Hey, yeah, everybody. Yeah, uh, we, we good? Um, yeah, we're good. All right, we're good. Now, uh, the uh, proceedings on Tuesday wrapped up just minutes before we go to air here. Uh, after the House impeachment managers decided they did not wish to use, they did not need to use their uh, final 33 minutes that were allotted to them to make their presentation. So while uh, we thought that it would still be ongoing as we go to air, it j literally just finished uh, minutes ago. Uh, the uh, Tuesday debate uh, was over the constitutionality that was so unapologetically uh, disingenuous, this case, this debate from the Trump side that I almost I almost did not even want to offer it airtime uh, from my show to cover this ridiculous, phony, knowingly disingenuous argument. The, the real arguments begin on Wednesday afternoon, but on Tuesday it was about whether it was constitutional at all to hold a trial for an impeached president. Of course, Donald Trump's lawyers did not uh, seem to recognize that he had been impeached while he was in office as they made a very long and confusing case later in the day that impeachment for a president who is no longer in office is unconstitutional and that therefore, if Republicans wanted to, someday they could impeach Jimmy Carter, which, of course, is not true because Donald Trump was, in fact, a seated president when he was impeached. So, of course, it is constitutional to hold a trial for a president that has already been impeached. Of course, you can hold a trial after you've been impeached, as long as the person has been impeached while in office. It has been done before. Also, the Constitution requires it, not to mention that Democrats wanted to hold this U.S. Senate trial while Donald Trump was still in office. But then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell refused to do so. If an impeachment trial is barred after a president is out of office, then a president, as the uh, impeachment managers argued, can do anything anything, can do any unlawful, unconstitutional thing that he or she wants in their last weeks of office on the basis that they can never be held accountable for it. It is what the impeachment managers described both in their in their pretrial briefs and uh, during their arguments on Tuesday as the January exception, to which they said the Constitution does not offer such a January exception. 
The House impeachment managers in their reply to Trump's final trial brief called it, quote, inconceivable that the framers designed impeachment to be virtually useless in a president's final weeks or days when opportunities to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power are most present. As we noted on yesterday's broadcast, when we dealt with a lot of these uh, these points, one of the, the top Republican lawyers, Chuck Cooper, pointed out over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal that the vote to bar an official from future office can only happen after that official is out of office. That vote would take place after the conviction uh, of an impeached official. It can only happen after they're out of office, either because they have left office on their own uh, or they were convicted in the impeachment, which means they are immediately removed from office. So therefore, the vote that happens next would always be for an official who is out of office. That vote, according to the Constitution, can't even happen until then. About 150 legal and constitutional scholars on both the left and the right have said the same thing. The Constitution, yes, authorizes the impeachment of former officials. So it is it's a ridiculous, disingenuous, uh, disingenuous argument that is being made by a ridiculous, disingenuous defense team and their ridiculous, disingenuous GOP sycophant defenders led by the ridiculous, disingenuous Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky who raised this argument in the first place. Nonetheless, a vote was forced on this matter on the first day of the trial as the first order of business at the start of the trial with the substantive opening arguments on the actual article of incitement of insurrection to begin on Wednesday afternoon. But even this argument uh, over the constitutionality of the matter offered a preview of the case that is being made by the nine Democratic impeachment managers from the House, whose presentation, including video, was simply riveting and at times chilling and at times heartbreaking, at least as I saw it. Oh, me too. Most definitely. Lead impeachment manager Jamie Raskin of Maryland opened the uh, the argument. He went right to the videotape pretty quickly, which I will link to when we uh, to the actual uh, videotape that they showed when I post tonight's broadcast at bradblog.com because the video, some of which we have not seen before, some of which members of the Senate almost certainly haven't seen before, particularly on the Republican side, but that video was both riveting, chilling, terrifying, and it was at times profane. We've done our best here to to bleep the profane parts in the very short time that we had. Uh, am I right, staff? <laughs> yes. And, and we've edited down from the original 13 minutes or so, but uh, hopefully the even just the audio here will give you a sense of what senators saw today at the opening of the second impeachment trial of Donald John Trump. Because I've been a professor of constitutional law for three decades, I know there are a lot of people who are dreading endless lectures about the Federalist Papers here. Please breathe easy, okay? I remember well W.H. Auden's line that a professor is someone who speaks while other people are sleeping. You will not be hearing extended lectures from me because our case is based on cold, hard facts. It's all about 
the facts. Now, President Trump has sent his lawyers here today to try to stop the Senate from hearing the facts of this case. They want to call the trial over before any evidence is even introduced. Their argument is that if you commit an impeachable offense in your last few weeks in office, you do it with constitutional impunity. You get away with it. In other words, conduct that would be a high crime and misdemeanor in your first year as president, and your second year as president, and your third year as president, and for the vast majority of your fourth year as president, you can suddenly do in your last few weeks in office without facing any constitutional accountability at all. This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. A January exception. And everyone can see immediately why this is so dangerous. It's an invitation to the president to take his best shot at anything he may want to do on his way out the door, including using violent means to lock that door, to hang on to the Oval Office at all costs, and to block the peaceful transfer of power. In other words, the January exception is an invitation to our founder's worst nightmare. And if we buy this radical argument that President Trump's lawyers advance, we risk allowing January 6th to become our future. And what will that mean for America? Think about it. What will the January exception mean to future generations if you grant it? We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. Take the Capitol. says you have to protect our country and you have to protect our constitution and you can't vote on fraud and fraud breaks up everything doesn't it when you catch somebody in a fraud you're allowed to go by very different rules 
So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do and fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Pennsylvania Avenue, I love Pennsylvania Avenue, and we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. We're debating a step that has never been taken in American history. President Trump claims the election was stolen. The assertions range from specific local allegations to constitutional arguments to sweeping conspiracy theories. But, my colleagues, nothing before us proves illegality anywhere near the massive scale, the massive scale that would have tipped the entire election. My challenge today is not about the good people of Arizona. And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Madam, Mr. Speaker, can I have order in the chamber? The House will be in order. The House will be in order. Okay.
There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. That was part of the video presented by the House Democratic uh, impeachment managers on the uh, Tuesday, the first day of the U.S. Senate trial, uh, his second impeachment trial, Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. The video ends with a tweet from Donald Trump on January 6th, that same day at 6.01 p.m. That would be hours after the Capitol had been seized, taken over and remained under siege and ravaged. The tweet said, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long, adding, go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. On that day, five were killed in that rampage, one of them a Capitol Police officer. Later, two more Capitol Police officers took their own lives. There were more than 100 police officers injured, many of them quite seriously. As we saw Trump's words there uh, in front of the White House to his crowd uh, juxtaposed with the violence that he fomented, and uh, the attempted insurrection that he incited and is now being impeached for. Jamie Raskin uh, picked up his presentation after that video. Senators, the president was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives on January 13th for doing that. You ask what a high crime and misdemeanor is under our Constitution? That's a high crime and misdemeanor. If that's not an impeachable offense, then there is no such thing. And if the president's arguments for a January exception are upheld, then even if everyone agrees that he's culpable for these events, even if the evidence proves, as we think it definitively does, that the president incited a violent insurrection on the day Congress met to finalize the presidential election, he would have you believe there is absolutely nothing the Senate can do about it. No trial, no facts. He wants you to decide that the Senate is powerless at that point. That can't be right. The transition of power is always the most dangerous moment for democracies. Every historian will tell you that. We just saw it in the most astonishing way. We lived through it. And you know what? The framers of our Constitution knew it. That's why they created a Constitution with an oath written into it that binds the president from his very first day in office until his very last day in office and every day in between. Under that Constitution and under that oath, the president of the United States is forbidden to commit high crimes and misdemeanors against the people at any point 
that he's in office. Indeed, that's one specific reason the impeachment, conviction, and disqualification powers exist, to protect us against presidents who try to overrun the power of the people in their elections and replace the rule of law with the rule of mobs. These powers must apply even if the president commits his offenses in his final weeks in office. In fact, that's precisely when we need them the most, because that's when elections get attacked. Everything that we know about the language of the Constitution, the framers' original understanding and intent, prior Senate practice, and common sense confirms this rule. The vast majority of constitutional scholars who studied the question and weighed in on the proposition being advanced by the president, this January exception, heretofore unknown, agree with us. And that includes the nation's most prominent conservative legal scholars, among hundreds of other constitutional lawyers and professors. But I want to highlight a few key points from constitutional history that strike me as compelling in foreclosing President Trump's argument that there's a secret January exception hidden away in the Constitution. The first point comes from English history, which matters because as Hamilton wrote, England provided the model from which the idea of this institution has been borrowed. And it would have been immediately obvious to anyone familiar with that history that former officials could be held accountable for their abuses while in office. Every single impeachment of a government official that occurred during the framers' lifetime concerned a former official. Indeed, the most famous of these impeachments occurred while the framers gathered in Philadelphia to write the Constitution. It was the impeachment of Warren Hastings, the former governor general of the British colony of Bengal, and a corrupt guy. The framers knew all about it, and they strongly supported the impeachment. In fact, the Hastings case was invoked by name at the convention. It was the only specific impeachment case that they discussed at the convention. It played a key role in their adoption of the high crimes and misdemeanor standard. And even though everyone there surely knew that Hastings had left office two years before his impeachment trial began, not a single framer, not one, raised a concern when Virginian George Mason held up the Hastings impeachment as a model for us in the writing of our Constitution. The early state constitutions supported the idea too. Every single state constitution in the 1780s either specifically said that former officials could be impeached or were entirely consistent with the idea. In contrast, not a single state constitution prohibited trials of former officials. As a result, there was an overwhelming presumption in favor of allowing legislatures to hold former officials accountable in this way. Any departure from that norm would have been a big deal, and yet there's no sign anywhere that that ever happened. Some states, including Delaware, even confined impeachment only to officials who had already left office. This confirms that removal was never seen as the exclusive purpose of impeachment in America. The goal was always about accountability, protecting society, and deterring official corruption. Delaware matters for another reason. Writing about 
impeachment in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton explained that the president of America would stand upon no better ground than a governor of New York and upon worse ground than the governors of Maryland and Delaware. He thus emphasized that the president is even more accountable than officials in Delaware, where, as I noted, the Constitution clearly allowed impeachment of former officials. And nobody involved in the convention ever said that the framers meant to reject this widely accepted, deeply rooted understanding of the word impeachment when they wrote it into our Constitution. That was lead House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin uh, making his opening presentation about the constitutionality of holding a trial in the U.S. Senate. That presentation was then followed by presentations from Congressman uh, Joe Neguse of Colorado, who meticulously explained why the uh, pre-trial argument that was submitted by Trump's attorneys actually makes no sense at all and was in contradiction with the Constitution, with the intentions of the framers, and with Senate precedent itself, where they have held a number of trials after uh, an official has already been out of office. He used specific, precise, historical quotes uh, and previous cases of impeachment trials for former officials in the Senate uh, in order to shore up the case that an impeachment trial for a former official is indeed constitutional. Congressman Neguse was then followed in turn by David Cicilline of uh, Rhode Island, he continued to underscore both the legality and necessity of an impeachment trial and the danger that Donald Trump presents, as well as future presidents would uh, uh, present. Should this precedent of a January exception to the president's duty to defend the law and the Constitution be established by what is now happening here? He also talked about how Donald Trump failed to defend the Capitol for hours as it was attacked. Finally, Congressman uh, Raskin returned to sum up their case over the constitutionality of this proceeding by sharing some personal thoughts from the January 6th attack, which uh, where he was in Congress the day after he had buried his son. His family wanted him to actually stay home and grieve, but he felt that it was his constitutional duty to be there to cast his vote. And he asked his daughter and her new husband to join him at the Capitol for that historic day to witness the peaceful transfer of power in America. Now, he says they asked him, knowing that uh, Trump had invited a mob of protesters to Washington, D.C. that day, if it would be safe for them to be there. Of course, he told them, this is the U.S. Capitol. And then the assault happened, and he was separated from his daughter for hours as his daughter was forced to hide under a table, as I understand it. And then when they were all finally reunited hours later, Raskin explained. And when they were finally rescued over an hour later by Capitol officers, and we were together, I hugged them, and I apologized and I told my daughter, Tabitha, who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America, now, I told her how sorry I was. And I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. 
of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day. And since then, that one hit me the hardest. That and watching someone use an American flagpole the flag still on it to spear and pummel one of our police officers ruthlessly, mercilessly, tortured by a pole with a flag on it that he was defending with his very life. People died that day. Officers ended up with head damage and brain damage. People's eyes were gouged. An officer had a heart attack. An officer lost three fingers that day. Two officers have taken their own lives. Senators, this cannot be our future. This cannot be the future of America. We cannot have presidents inciting and mobilizing mob violence against our government in our institutions because they refuse to accept the will of the people under the Constitution of the United States. Much less can we create a new January exception in our precious, beloved Constitution that prior generations have died for and fought for so that corrupt presidents have several weeks to get away with whatever it is they want to do. History does not support a January exception in any way. So why would we invent one for the future? Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead House impeachment manager, closing the uh, closing the opening argument on the constitutionality of these proceedings at all. They hadn't even they still haven't even gotten to the actual substance of the uh, of the uh, impeachment for incitement of insurrection for Donald John Trump. This argument on Tuesday was just whether they are allowed to even have that trial. Let's take a quick break and we will come back with the uh, response to that uh, pretty impressive argument I yeah. got from the uh, House Democrats as we uh, go through, I guess, what we will call day one of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. Kind of want to call it impeachment trial two, electric boogaloo, but <laughs> we know how that has been used by Donald Trump supporters to call for, yes, civil war. Quick break, and we are back with the Republican response, the Donald Trump response on day one of the second impeachment of Donald Trump. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. Bradcast. Brad Friedman with our special coverage of Donald Trump impeachment trial number two, which kicked off on Tuesday. 
with uh, this opening argument about whether it's even constitutional at all to have this uh, trial, which is just a ridiculous argument. And to, cer to a certain extent, it seems like Donald Trump's defense attorneys here seemed to understand that. At least the first one did. Bruce Castor, who was the uh, lead defense counsel for Donald Trump, uh, he's the guy who, by the way, decided not to prosecute Bill Cosby in Pennsylvania, where this guy was a longtime uh, prosecutor. So he, he sort of came out after the presentation from the House Democrats. And Des, I know you only got to watch part of this because you were busy then editing the right. previous uh, But segment. I could hear it in the background. And there were some times during the arguments of both of the Trump team lawyers that came forward that made me stop because I was so gobsmacked. It made it through <laughs> my headphones and through the editing process to go, what? What did they just say? Well, for a start, the first guy out, Bruce Castor, he didn't make an argument at all about the constitutionality of this. He seemed to go off on this long, rambling presentation. It was unclear what he was even talking about. People on Twitter were saying, oh, at this point, he seems to be just uh, filibustering. Yes. And now later on, what we are told is that, oh, this was on purpose and that they changed up the uh, defense team, changed their plan at the last second because the presentation by the House managers was so effective that they sort of reshuffled things and that Bruce Castor's goal here was basically just to take away the mood. Of what, of what they had been left with after the Democratic presentation, to sort of confuse everybody, to talk about other stuff. And uh, he was complimentary of, uh, of, of Raskin and the other Democrats and the, um, the, the emotional case that they made. But it was really just a sort of a rambling filibuster. It did not respond at all to the House impeachment manner, uh, manager's meticulous argument as to why, yes, this absolutely is constitutional. And then it became a political speech. He warned, for example, that if this trial is allowed to happen, that other officials might be impeached after they are out of office, like uh, former attorney general under Barack Obama, Eric Holder. But again, Donald Trump was impeached while he was in office. So this was not a constitutional argument at all that Bruce Castor made. He also, by the way, seemed to threaten. I don't know if you heard this part, Des. He seemed to be threatening Nebraska's Senator Ben Sass, uh, who has indicated that he is open to an impeachment uh, conviction no, vote. No, I missed that part. Yeah, he was he was he was threatening Ben Sass if he votes in favor of this trial. And I felt like surely I must have gotten distracted and I missed something. And I asked people on Twitter, hey, is he threatening Ben Sass? And they wrote back and they said, yeah, sure. Sounds like that to me. Wow. He argued that there is no need to disqualify Trump from future office because voters are smart enough to change presidents. You can leave this to the voters, he said, because the voters just did exactly that. Really? Yes. So he basically just admitted that Trump lost. He did. Wow. I wonder if Trump knows that. I wondered if uh, I wonder if uh, Bruce Castor will be back uh, on the defense team by tomorrow yeah. after making that argument, because that was at the heart of his argument is that, hey, we don't need to do this. You don't have to vote against him being, uh, you know, being allowed to hold future offices. The, the voters know how to do that because here they did it. They removed Donald Trump. 
He was followed then by David Schoen. Uh, he's the guy who had represented Roger Stone and was uh, working with Jeffrey Epstein before Jeffrey Epstein, the sex trafficker, was uh, w- was found dead, uh, supposedly by suicide. David Schoen made this very long and rambly uh, argument. He eventually, I think, got to an argument against the constitutionality of this uh Uh, of this trial. But to be frank, I had trouble following it. He was reading it. He was reading it really quickly and basically arguing. He started again with a political argument, claiming that this trial will tear this country apart as we have only seen once in this country, referring to this civil war, I presume. Uh, He says that this is a process fueled by base hatred, by fear that one day Democrats may not be in power again. Uh, and he, he basically went after, OK, he made a, a a political argument, a partisan argument. But that, again, was not the question. The question was a constitutional one and whether this uh, trial was, in fact, constitutional. He then ran a video of many Democrats over many years during Trump's uh, administration uh, cl- calling for Trump to be impeached, which was, to me, another strange strategy. You know, the fact that, okay, many people wanted Trump to be impeached means that somehow he should not be impeached. I don't get it. Uh, but this is what yeah. this is the vet video this that they what, ran. This is what served as their arguments. I mean, it was, uh, we, you know how it's like that old saying about lawyers, if you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. If you have the law on your side, pound the law. But if you have neither on your side, pound the table. And that is exactly what they were doing today from what I saw. Or if you don't have it on your side, run a video of people saying Donald Trump should be impeached. I don't get it. He also, in his argument, quoted a a member of the losing House debate on this impeachment. Congressman Tom Cole, I believe from Oklahoma, when he ordered when uh, Cole had argued that this is a matter not for Congress, but for the judicial system, not for the House. Of course, Cole lost that argument in the U.S. House. And yes, Donald Trump was impeached. So to me, it was unclear why he was reading this long, rambling article about that. You know, why he didn't just quote Sean Hannity or Lou Dobbs (laughs) to make his argument. Uh, He argued that only a sitting president can be impeached. And he took quite a while making that argument. But a sitting president was impeached impeached Donald Trump was sitting. I told you this was a stupid argument and a stupid day in this trial. He went on to say, Bruce uh, David Schoen did, that because Donald Trump is now out of office, he therefore cannot be removed from office, which he says is a requirement somehow of the in the Constitution. And therefore, he cannot be impeached or tried at all. I think it was wildly confusing. It was an academic argument, to be frank. And, you know, I kept thinking about the old saying, when you're explaining, you are losing. Felt to me like a losing argument. But I don't think that it had to be a winning argument in order to win among Republicans. Exactly. It just had to be an argument. Yeah. Any argument. 
And they would vote in favor of it, I yeah. suspect. Uh, he, he knows that the Republican senators actually need them to say that the trial itself is illegitimate, regardless of whatever, you know, BS they use to try to justify. But they have to say that the trial itself is illegitimate so they can give themselves a way to acquit Trump while they dodge taking any kind of stand on what Trump actually did. So they're just trying to hand them that argument that they need to justify giving themselves, the Republican senators, giving themselves cover and it, and to it acquit. Li- and it literally didn't matter because, yeah. because he read it so fast. I was, you know, and I was paying attention closely, but I could not follow what the hell he was saying. It didn't matter. If I couldn't understand it, I assure you those senators could not understand it. They didn't need to understand it. They just needed to hear, ah, there's an argument against the constitutionality of this process. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and vote with that. And vote with that they did. After uh, David Schoen finished his presentation, there were 33 minutes left that Jamie Raskin could have used to uh, offer uh, a, a rebuttal. He felt it wasn't necessary. I agree. No rebuttal was needed at that point because nobody knew what the hell either Castor or Schoen was talking about. So they took a final vote. Is this constitutional to have this trial in the U.S. Senate for uh, a president who is no longer a sitting president? The answer is yes, they absolutely can. The final vote on that matter was 56 to 44. That means there were 44 Republican members of the U.S. Senate who voted that this proceeding was unconstitutional. It'll be uh, easier and shorter here to vote for the Republicans who uh, voted that, yes, this is constitutional. After all, that would be Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. That is five. Those are the same five who had voted in a test vote on this similar matter a week or so ago. Right. There was one additional Republican this time who came along, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana. He was the only one who changed his mind since that earlier test vote on this point uh, a week or so ago. So uh, the uh, real opening arguments will continue on Wednesday afternoon. We will do our best to cover those as well. Let me take a quick break and we will come back. Des, I think I'm, I'm making an audible here. Yes. I've got to do some bumping. I'm I sorry know. about that no in worries. advance. Quick break and we are back with more on the broadcast. On day one of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. The spies came out of the water. Yeah, maybe they did. So bad you know. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, there's a whole lot going on at the same time as the second impeachment trial of <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, I don't know how we're going to sort of uh, work with all of it. We're going to do our best. But Desi Doyen, that means I've got to bump your excellent Green News report today. I know. Until tomorrow. I'm sure nothing will go wrong tomorrow. <laughs> 
It's a very good one. You'll want to tune in for that on the next uh, thrilling edition of the Bradcast. But uh, I want to get to this because there's a vote going on on Wednesday at the Elections Assistance Commission that I want to make sure you know about. But before we get there, I want to hit one story, Des, that is in your Green News report that folks aren't hearing today. A hacker gained access to Oldsmar's water treatment plant in Florida. Tampa, near Tampa in Florida, bumping the sodium hydroxide, otherwise known as poisonous lye, into the water to a, quote, dangerous level, according to Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri on Monday in a press conference. The sheriff said that his deputies, along with the FBI and U.S. Secret Service, are investigating this breach as it's unclear if it came from within the U.S. or from a foreign actor. Now, whether it's a hacker is actually unclear. There is this remote access software that is on the uh, on this particular system that seems to have been used by someone. It's often used by people who work at the plant to be able to remotely, you know, check various levels and so forth. Yeah. Now, the incident occurred on February 5 at the city's water treatment plant around 8 a.m. An operator noticed someone had remotely entered the computer system that this person happened to be monitoring at the time. And he noticed this intrusion. This is the system responsible for controlling the chemicals and other operations uh, of the water treatment plant. At first, the operator didn't think much of the action because of the common use of this remote access software by supervisors to troubleshoot from elsewhere, etc. But then it happened again, and this time... The sheriff notes that the hacker did more than just remote in. According to the sheriff, the hacker spent up to five minutes in the system and adjusted the amount of sodium hydroxide in the water from the normal amount, which is 100 parts per million, to more than 11,000 parts per million. The uh, sheriff, Galtieri, said this is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase Sodium hydroxide, also known as lye, is the main ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. The operator immediately reduced the levels back to the appropriate amount and, quote, at no time was there a significant adverse effect on the water that was being treated. In this case, because the operator noticed that it was happening live, that the operator happened to be watching and saw it and was able to restore the levels in time. But the uh, officials note the sheriff, the mayor, the city manager, they all say that if the operator had not noticed the intrusion, that there are several fail-safe systems and alarms and so forth that are in place that that would have flagged the problem. Presumably, they explained, this would have caught, you know, this event by some other means before it actually made its way into the drinking water. Of course, that also presumes that the other fail-safe systems and alarms were not similarly manipulated or disabled by whoever the intruder or intruders actually were. So this is very troubling. The sheriff said this is somebody who is trying, as it appears on the surface, to do something bad. Yeah, I would say so. The remote access program has now been disabled while work is done to ensure that a breach like this does not happen again. Disabled, but not removed, apparently, meaning that it can be re-enabled, meaning that it can be accessed and used again. Thankfully, at least in this case, someone was staring at the monitor, saw the intrusion, was able to stop it, and hopefully now they are freaked out enough that they'll be able to prevent it from uh, happening again somehow. 
According to the sheriff, there is no knowledge of any other area systems being unlawfully accessed, but he did ask all area government entities to take a critical look at their infrastructure to ensure their security practices are uh, are up to par. U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, uh, who, by the way, voted to kill uh, Donald Trump's impeachment on Tuesday, said this should be treated as a matter of national security. Sicking people to uh, attack the U.S. Capitol, I guess, not a matter of uh, U.S. uh, national security, but this is. Anyway, something that I rarely say, at least in this case, I agree with Senator Rubio. It (laughs) is a matter of national security. And with that in mind, a story broke over the weekend, which uh, should lead us all to take Rubio's notice as, as seriously as it deserves, because... Uh, This is your notice that a decision on this particular matter is set to be made on Wednesday. So I'm trying to fit it in here amid Trump's impeachment trial. Leaders of the federal agency that oversees election administration in the country have quietly weakened a key element of proposed new security standards for voting systems, raising concerns among election integrity experts that many such systems will remain vulnerable to hacking. Yes, they will. Yes, they will if this is allowed to go through. Yes, this relates to the water problem in Florida. The EAC, which is the Elections Assistance Commission, is now poised to approve its first new security standards for voting and tabulation systems in 15 years. They're going to do this on Wednesday after a very long process That involved multiple technical and elections uh, community bodies and open hearings and so forth that's been going on for years. But ahead of the scheduled vote on February 10 to ratify these new standards for security for voting and tabulation systems, the EAC leadership which is not made of uh, technical cyber, you know, cybersecurity experts, their political appointees, the EAC leadership tweaked the standards that are about to be voted on in order to remove language that had banned wireless modems and chips from voting machines as a condition for those machines to be federally certified for voting and tabulation. So the experts looked at this issue, the cybersecurity experts, the voting systems experts looked at this issue and said, no, we don't want to have modems and radio chips and so forth in these systems, and the new standards would have barred that. But the EAC, just before voting to finalize these measures, almost inexplicably uh, removed that requirement from these standards. The uh, leaders at the agency argue that overall, the revised guidelines represent a major security improvement. Overall, (laughs) they stress that the rules require manufacturers to disable wireless functions that are present in any machine, although the wireless hardware can remain in the systems. That means, according to cybersecurity and voting systems experts who I have spoken to about this, that the software that was used to disable the hardware, because the hardware is still in there, that software can similarly be used to re-enable the same hardware and no one would ever know. 
In a February 3 letter to the agency, computer scientists and election integrity activists said that the change, quote, profoundly weakens voting system security and will introduce very real opportunities to remotely attack election systems. They demand that the wireless hardware ban be restored. Susan Greenhall is quoted in this uh, AP article. She's been on this show uh, a number of times. She's the uh, senior advisor on election security at Free Speech for People. She said they are trying to do an end run to avoid scrutiny by the public and Congress. She accused the agency leaders of uh, bowing to industry pressures because, yes, that is what the EAC has long, long done. I've reported on that for years. Rather than regulating the uh, private voting system industry, regulating their hardware and software as they are supposed to do, the EAC has, uh, frankly, been captured by the private voting system industry that Mm -hmm. they are supposed to be overseeing and regulating, period. In this case, it's supposed to be a bipartisan group. The, uh, the, The EAC chair who was appointed by Trump, but actually selected by Minnesota's Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar, a guy by the name of Benjamin Hovland. He said that the objections to the change should not be allowed to hold up the new rules and their significant improvements in cybersecurity. He said the ban on wireless hardware and voting machines would force vendors who currently build systems with off-the-shelf components to have to move to more expensive, custom-built hardware, according to Hovland. He said that would hurt competition in an industry already dominated by a trio of companies. He said, quote, you have people putting their own personal agenda, putting themselves before the health of our democracy. He said it is so small sided the way some people have been approaching this. This is also gobsmacking. He speaks of competition. It will reduce competition rather than, hey, dude, we need to protect our elections. And I can't think of any reason why we would need to uh, protect our elections now or to, you know, keep uh, remote uh, hardware out of our election systems. By the way, even if it's disabled, good luck telling that to the MAGA mob next time they have questions about results. And they will be right to be concerned about that. Uh, Anyway, I hope to talk about that more in the future. We'll see how that vote goes on Wednesday. It's absolutely insane, but I wanted you to know about it, even amidst the impeachment. we got to get out of here. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. We will continue our special coverage tomorrow. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible, as are we, by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves as long as we can. bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the bradblog. That is it. We will uh, see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow, as the impeachment trial continues. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. The spies came out of the water.